Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Gabby. And I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins Podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all mediums of art. So movies, TV shows, folklore, books, etc. And sometimes we'll talk about times where life has imitated art. Yeah. So what's tonight about? Today we're going to be talking about folie à deux, which is French for the madness of two or more. Sometimes it happens with groups of people. Folie à deux. Is that what you said? Yep, fully adieu. Okay, so is that French? Yeah, I literally just said that's French for madness of oh, two. Oh, yeah, you did. You did, yeah. So this occurs, obviously, when two or more people share the same delusion. So it's basically means shared delusions. And it mostly happens between people who are incredibly close. So like close-knit families, Us. siblings, couples, yeah. There have been several cases of folie adieu that have been documented over the years, but today I'm going to be telling you about three of them. Three the, of them? Yes. The first case is apparently the real-life inspiration behind the film Incantation. Oh, yeah. that's uh, Where's that made? Taiwan. Yeah, I think that came across Shudder. I, I think it was where I heard of it. I think it was on Shutter anyway. Might have been Netflix because I think it might have been a Netflix movie. but It could have been I'm that too. Sure. I. I've heard of of Incantation. I wanted to watch it. I yeah. don't think I did. I really want to watch it. Obviously, we usually watch the stuff that we talk about on here or listen to or, you know, whatever. But this one I have not watched yet. I do plan to watch it. The reason that I didn't watch it before doing this podcast is because... It'll scare the shit out of you, right? 
Mm, well, yes, I think it will. But that's not the reason that I haven't watched it. The reason that I haven't watched it is because I have fairly severe OCD. I'm being treated for it right now um, with exposure therapy. But I just started treatment not that long ago. And I don't think that this would be a good idea for me to watch because based on what I know about the movie, I think it would trigger my OCD. And I don't think I'm in a place for that to... Yeah, let's just not do that. Yeah. Not right now. Yeah. So, but I'll tell you a little bit about what it's about. Okay. So the movie is about, it's a found footage film, I believe. And... Found footage, like Blair Witch? Yeah. So it's it's like a, it's fiction, right? Yes. Okay. And it is about a woman and her daughter who are dealing with some type of entity that is like possessing them or like haunting them, hurting them basically. Bad things are happening to them. All right. And throughout the movie, actually, I'm going to say potential spoilers. So if you want to watch it, stop listening for the next like 30 seconds. Yeah, just fast forward 30 seconds or maybe a minute. So in the movie, it seems like the viewer thinks that one thing is happening throughout most of the movie. And it isn't until the end of the movie that you realize that something else is actually going on and you are kind of being tricked mm. by the main character. They, I, I believe that the main character almost like interacts with the audience of the movie, kind of asks you to like do chants and like look at things and remember certain things. And by the end of the movie, you realize that the reason that she's been asking you to do these chants and to look at this stuff is because when you engage in those things, you then also get possessed. And what it does is it spreads out the burden of the possession to more people so that it's not hurting, you know, one person a ton. It's you hurting. You can't watch this movie. I know. It's hurting. I, I don't care if it's 10 years from now. You can't, you can't ever watch this movie. I know. It's hurting a lot of people less and and this i think is that, exactly the kind of film you cannot watch i know and i think that it's her daughter who gets like the curse or whatever mm. and so she's trying to help her daughter she doesn't want her daughter to at the expense of everyone else doesn't she doesn't care yes exactly so the movie incantation is allegedly based on the story of the wu family from right Kaohsiung, Taiwan. And there's not a whole lot of information on this in English. So I've gathered what information I can and I'm going to tell you that. So if I get anything wrong or if you guys know, you know, more information about the case, please email us at darkoriginspod at gmail.com and let me know. And I will update it in the next episode. Yeah, that'd be great. Also, if you have any feedback at all or suggestions, anything, it'd be great. Yes, yes. Please email us or if you have any recommendations or you want to hear about a certain story or movie or anything, please email us. Questions about the dogs, sugar gliders, whatever. Pictures of the dogs, sugar gliders, my feet, anything. Okay, let's continue. Feet cost extra. Of course, of course. So (laughs) this occurred in 2005. 2005. So nearly 20 years ago, 18 years ago. Yep. The Wu family consisted of... Oh. And I'm going to say, again, just in case, the Wu family lived in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. The Wu family consisted of the two parents and four children who they had raised into adulthood by this point. The youngest sister begins to act strange, and the family believes she's been possessed by a deity that 
they had worshipped for a long time. And this is one part of the story that I'm confused about. I think other people are a little confused about as well because it seems like they, at least some of them, are possessed by deities that, like I said, they worshipped. So they were like benevolent, positive deities. And so I'm not sure why they believed that they were possessed by those deities when they were having such negative things happening to them. But so they believe they were worshiping positive deities. They are positive deities to the general public who practices the same religion. Do you know what this religion's called? I think it's Tao, but I don't want to say that and be wrong. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The youngest sister claims to have a premonition that the oldest sister who lives in Taipei would be in grave danger if she didn't return to Kaohsiung. And it seems like her family believes her. So they go and pick up the older sister and they bring her back home. After returning to the family home, the oldest sister, who's just come back, begins to suffer from extreme nightmares when she sleeps. Soon, she claims to be possessed as well by a different deity. Her behavior spiraled rapidly into frequent self-harm, where she would hit herself over and over. And the family, afraid and unsure of what to do, reached out to their religious leaders for exorcisms, but... The exorcisms didn't really seem to help. Like dominoes falling, each family member became possessed by a different deity, and the strange behavior spread from individual acts of violence to themselves into interpersonal acts between each other. They would hit each other, burn each other, and urinate and defecate on each other, among many other things. When none of those things worked to release them of the grasp that their respective deities had over them, they stopped eating, hoping to starve out the deity yeah but i mean spirits don't eat right i guess it depends on your belief they they believe that if they starve themselves it will starve out the deity and you see that in a lot of religions they leave offerings of fruit and stuff whether or not that's merely spiritual and they believe that it's just a spiritual offering or they believe that the deity actually eats it i'm not sure but you know sure yeah the only thing they would consume was holy water Oh, now that'll get them out of there. Eventually, the oldest sister was dying of starvation, but the family was hopeful that this meant that the deity possessing her would die, not that she would die. Okay. She did eventually pass away, and the family took her to the hospital. They still thought that she was going to be okay. They were convinced that she would come back after the deity finally left her body. When medical professionals did an autopsy, they found that her stomach was filled with feces, which was obviously cause for alarm. And in some sources, it also mentioned that her nose was filled with feces, which I'm not sure if that was a mistranslation or if they also um, were putting feces into each other's noses or if maybe she had thrown up the feces and that's how it got into her nose. I'm not totally sure on that. But they went from just drinking, you know, holy water to then consuming each other's feces. So, so okay, so they do that and then they walk into the hospital with one of their children, but they have three others. And I, I, I think the story continues, right? Like, this isn't the end of the story, right? Not quite, but it is pretty close. Okay, but the but it doesn't end here at the hospital. So so they walk into a hospital with a child or a young person who is full of feces. Like you can't just walk in and then walk back out. Like what what happened there? Do you know? So I'm pretty sure after they dropped her off, I think that they left, and I think that they okay. left the city as well. Um, 
trying to still free themselves from their possessions. So, so, but, so, I'm sorry. So they were pretty aware, right? Like they knew, is it that they, is, is it that they were aware that what they were doing was wrong or like, like they knew the difference between right and wrong or is it more that they knew that they had to do this, but they knew that other people wouldn't understand? I think that it's the latter. I just, based on the limited information that we have, I think that they knew that other people were not going to understand why they had to do this, but they did have to do it in order to save their children's lives. And on top of that, they're still hoping that she's, you know, going to come back from the dead, but also she's going to, right. They're not even hoping they believe it. Yes, they believe it, but they also have, you know, their three other children that they're still trying to save and themselves from these possessions. So they have to leave and continue on trying to free themselves. So obviously the doctors contacted police and police right. executed a search of the house and they found it covered in religious items. Not really a big surprise. They also spoke with neighbors who said that they heard loud shrieks and cries coming from the house frequently and they also witnessed the family hurting one another. They never called the police? Um, I don't think so. But again, like a lot of this is not written about in right. in English, so things could be left out. So the family was eventually arrested on charges of domestic abuse, but this is really strange to me because they were deemed fit to stand trial, which I don't understand how that happens, or maybe they had gotten them psychiatric help before the trial, and then they were deemed to stand trial. Maybe. But they were ultimately found not guilty because they hadn't killed her. She died from starvation. At least that was the reasoning that was given in the sources that I read. And, uh. you know, if they were found, I I think either that or them being found not guilty by reason of insanity. If there's something like that in Taiwan, I think that that would be most fair. This family clearly needs help. And that's why it's a fully ado case, because they all had shared delusions. They all needed mental health help. This is fascinating. Do we know where they are or what happened? No, that is all that I've been able to find. I mean, hopefully they just were able to get healthy and grieve the loss of their family member and, you know, they're living a healthy life now. That's what I hope. Wow. So we are now going to go on to... Just when you think you've heard it all. All right, keep going. We're going to go on to the second case of Foley Adu. Obviously, only the first case is what incantation was based off of, but I wanted to go over a few cases just to show like the similarities and commonalities between the cases yeah, and also the differences. Yeah, cool. And since there wasn't a whole lot of information about that one case. Do you at any time cover a dancing plague? No, but I was Damn. thinking about that because... It's my favorite. I, I know. <laughs> Oh yeah, the dancing plague. We'll cover that in a different in all a different right, episode right, that's for my sure. Favorite thing. I know it's wild. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. I want another one to break out. We got to deal with coronavirus. I want a dancing plague. Yeah, me too. Well, actually, no, I don't because people died. I know. So, but but we haven't had a good old fashioned dancing plague in a long time. I know it's been like five hundred years or something like that. Okay, we're due. Sorry about the barking in the background. That's Arthur. He's rec currently recovering from surgery, which is why this episode is later than usual, as well as 
our power and Wi-Fi went out from basically all weekend. Don't worry. Arthur's fine. He had some cysts we had removed. It was a little bit more invasive than we thought it would be, but he's okay. And uh, he's on the mend. He's yes. just It just has put a wrench in the works. Some storms came through. That's all. Yes. He's doing great. He's actually doing amazing. And we have been calling him Frankenweenie because he looks like little Frankenweenie. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the second story is about the Kanekos. Kanekos. Yes. Sounds like a, a mountain chain. Okay. Okay. You know? So. Like an island in Hawaii or something. Oh, okay. I can see that. So the Kanekos were a relatively normal family of three. They lived in Rexburg, Idaho. The father, David, was a highly educated man who worked at the Naval Reactors Facility In order to do his work there, he actually had the highest clearance available to civilians. Lorraine was the wife of David, and together they shared a daughter named Laura. Laura was brilliant and had accomplished a lot at a young age. She was the valedictorian of her high school. And unfortunately, her father did not react to her being the valedictorian the way that you would expect. He worked in the reactor, though. What? Didn't he work in the reactors? Oh, my God. You're so so dumb. Okay. (laughs) So instead of, you know, encouraging her and being super proud of her for, you know, becoming the valedictorian, he actually refused to let her give her valedictorian speech at graduation. What? Yeah. You're too good. You're too smart. What? How do you do that? What do you? He didn't want her to give it. He Why? he just he became very controlling. And Laura had a lot of dreams that were constrained by her father's controlling behaviors. Mm. And his behavior had become more apparent to those outside of the family at this point. But I don't think any of them expected things to end the way that they did. So the Kanekos were a very religious family. They had been ingratiated in the LDS church and LDS community for a long time. But they had begun to distance themselves after David had warned others of the visions that he was having. He claimed that he saw the end of the world and Jesus coming back. And he insisted that the prophet of the church was not telling the congregation the truth. So just to clarify, I don't know a ton about the Mormon religion, but what I have read, I believe the prophet is like the highest person in the church. Yep. So... That's who I'm referring to when I say prophet. His claims were not well received by the congregation, Mm. prompting him and his family to pull away from the church in 1994. So this is all happening like in the 90s or it starts in the 90s. 
Their isolation became even worse after Laura went to meet up with her maternal grandmother one day. The grandmother lived on the same plot of land as the Kanekos, but in a different house. And this specific day, Laura was talking to her grandma about her dreams to complete her mission in Japan. And obviously, I think a lot of people know that Mormons complete missions usually after high school. Sure. So she really wanted to do her mission in Japan. And her grandma enthusiastically agreed, commenting on how cool it would be for Laura to learn about her heritage and possibly learn the Japanese language. Oh, they were Japanese? Yeah. Okay. David, however, did not want his daughter to go on a mission to Japan. So after he heard about this interaction, he stomped over to his mother-in-law's house and demanded that she stay out of matters like that. Soon after this, she never saw her daughter or granddaughter again. Despite living on the same plot of land, the grandma only ever saw David come and go from the house. Laura's mom, Lorraine, had siblings who were just as concerned as their mom, the grandma. Yeah. This lasted for three years. Lorraine's mom would try to leave presents or letters for the family by the front door, but she would see David angrily kick them off the porch as soon as he got home. By 1997, Lorraine's siblings called the police to do a welfare check because, you know, they hadn't seen them. Mm -hmm. Police knocked on the door and the two women greeted them. The officers asked to come inside to make sure they had running water, electricity, and food, and it seemed that they had everything they needed. So there really wasn't anything else they could do since nothing illegal was happening. The two adult women explained that they chose to live a secluded lifestyle and they were content to continue doing so. Another welfare check was done in 2001, so about four years later. This time, the women seemed a little more hesitant to answer. Sheriff Klingler, who was freshly elected, so he had taken over this job of being sheriff and doing things like this very recently, yelled out to the women to tell them that he would come back with a search warrant if they didn't answer. Finally, the women came to the door to tell him that they were okay and they would just like to be left alone. Again, according to law enforcement, there wasn't much they could do. Fast forward three years later. Police get a call from Lorraine's relatives who tell them that David has been staying in hotels and apparently hasn't been going to work. So detectives finally decided to dig a little deeper. They spoke with relatives and neighbors who all suspected something was very wrong. Court order in hand, police knocked on the door in order to take them to be mentally evaluated. So they finally get a court order saying you can legally, you know, kind of force these women to go get psychiatric help. Yeah. This time, nobody answered, so police opened the door and took a step inside. It was startling. The house had become so cluttered from excessive hoarding that it was hard to move around. The windows were covered with black plastic, and the smell of strong chemicals hit their noses. It seemed that someone had attempted to cover up the chemical smell with hundreds of air fresheners, but police said it did not work. Okay. That's terrible. Chemicals on top of chemicals. Yeah. It was hard to see where anything was, so they had to navigate the house slowly to make sure they didn't miss either of the women. They spotted the bedroom and headed towards it. Once they opened the door, the smell suddenly shifted from chemically to something even worse. Yeah. The intense smell of decomposition overtook them all. As they made their way towards the bed, they could see that it looked as if someone was hiding under the covers. When they pulled the blanket back, they found both women dead in differing states of decomposition. Oh, no. One of the bodies was basically skeletal, while the other looked like she had been dead for a shorter period of time, and both were partially mummified. 
Now that they had found the bodies, they assembled a crew to extract both of them from the house and to take and sort everything else that was in there. They found many bizarre items, including hefty bags filled with used toilet paper, pages and pages of journal entries, and other strange notes that detailed things like how many times the furnace was turned on and off and like weather conditions, you know, just very strange things like that. Things you pay attention to and you have nothing to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. They also found empty cereal boxes with notes on them about the day that they were eaten and how much was eaten, as well as candy wrappers that contained similar notes. And the empty cereal boxes were broken down and basically it looked like they were almost like filed, as if like they were in like a filing cabinet. Like if you opened up a filing cabinet and you know you see all of them tucked in there next to each other, that's kind of what the cereal boxes looked like. Yeah. Meanwhile, police arrested David because, you know, he he told them that the women were fine. Like on this day, he said that they were fine. So they knew that at the very least he was lying, said there was something wrong. He had committed some type of crime. Something, yeah. If not murder or uh, some type of um, unwillful um, imprisonment, you know. Yeah, something. They knew that their small town police department would not be able to work this case alone. I mean, they rarely had murders in their county, let alone highly unusual deaths like this. The first pathologist who looked at the bodies wasn't able to tell detectives much because they weren't really familiar with bodies in such a state of decomposition. Sheriff Klingler reached out to Dr. William Rodriguez, an experienced anthropologist, to look at the bodies of Laura and Lorraine. He surmised that neither woman had been beaten, shot, or poisoned. Instead, he determined they had died due to starvation. He also determined that Laura died first in May or June of 2001, and Lorraine died about a year before they were found. So to put that in context, that means that David lived with the corpse of his daughter for three years and with the corpse of his wife for one year. Police needed to figure out how to charge David. Sure, he didn't kill them, but he also never got them help. He saw that they were sick and starving, and he said and did nothing. He went to work and went to the doctors when he needed help, so why not do the same for them? Like, there was evidence that he went to the doctor for pink eye, I think, and I think he also got a knee replacement done. Yeah, I don't know. I I think there could be an argument that he did kill these people. I mean, he made it so they couldn't leave, I I feel like. No, he... Like, abused them to a point where they couldn't leave. No, he didn't. He didn't make it so that they couldn't leave. At least that's not what evidence shows. And it, it evidence also does not show that he abused them. Well, he made it so his daughter couldn't go to, to Japan and all those things. Yes, he was very controlling. But the evidence seems to point to... Like, he was definitely complicit. But the, right. the Absolutely. But the evidence does not at least to the prosecutors, prove that he abused them to the point that they couldn't leave or that he forced them to, to stay there. You'll see as we continue on. Okay, I'm skeptical. They needed to understand what was wrong with the family, what led to this. They sought out a profiler, but it can take longer than a year to be assigned one. But fortunately, the FBI was having a conference for profilers in Alaska that same week, and they agreed to let the county share their case. So investigators flew out to Alaska to present it and get some feedback. The first step was to identify which journal entries belonged to which woman, because remember I said there were tons of journal entries. Right. Then they asked profiler Dr. Anne-Marie Omelia to review the entries. 
Dr. Amelia came to the conclusion that Laura had begun to suffer, and Laura is the daughter, remember, Mm. had begun to suffer with schizoaffective disorder in her early teens. Despite graduating valedictorian and maintaining a 4.0 GPA in high school and at Ricks College for as long as she attended, the young woman was having a progressively harder time separating fact from fiction. Laura had visions where God told her that she was supposed to marry an apostle, and the apostle was actually someone she knew in real life named Kevin. This specific delusion started in 1994 when the family first started to withdraw from public life. It seems that Laura had become obsessed with Kevin. It started out as an innocent crush of some sort, but quickly turned into something darker. Laura wrote about watching Kevin when he wasn't aware and observing how good of a person he was. Kevin ended up going on a mission to France after high school, and Laura continued to write about the revelation that they were meant to be together. She, She said that she believed that Jesus and her friend Scott, who had died from cystic fibrosis, and her and Kevin's future children's spirits, so let me try to say that in an easier to understand way, Jesus, Scott, and her and Kevin's future children's spirits all went to France to tell Kevin that he was supposed to marry Laura. Oh. So she believed that they had all passed on this message to him, that this is what was supposed to happen. She believed that he knew. So he was like coming back. To marry her. Knowing the secret. Yes, yes. And Lorraine, Laura's mom, feels that Kevin knew as well and that he knows that he made a commitment to the Lord and Heavenly Father. The spirit also told Lorraine that he would love her and he would be a pillar to others. So when Kevin came back from France and he sent Laura an invitation to his wedding to someone else, Mm. things quickly started to spiral out of control. She was obviously devastated. Yeah. She says that she believes that the reason that he was marrying someone else and wasn't marrying her was her own fault. She thinks that she was out of tune with the Lord and she calls herself wicked. Mm. And so she believes that she has to undergo this purification process to become righteous enough like so, to be like with a, him. Like a purification process that she's made up? It. I mean, yes, she does make it up. Kind of, but a lot of it is pulled from her religion. So it yeah. involves things like fasting, which is, you know, a part of her religion. Sure. Not to the extreme that she takes it, but she kind of uses what she knows and then does it to the utmost extreme to try to become as righteous as possible. Sure. And at this point, both of her parents share these delusions with her, but her dad doesn't really participate in them like her mom does. Yeah, she's just there encouraging it and like ready to go. And and she actually participates in the purification process with her. For years. Yes. So both Laura and Lorraine, like I said, set out on a mission to undergo this purification process in order to prepare Laura for her marriage. The purification process entailed extreme isolation and fasting, which is why the pair began to track their food intake so closely. And you can see... In her journals, she talks about the purification process and she says things like, every food is a battlefield, every food is an enemy, and they begin to start to ban certain foods, I think kind of using the Bible as a guide, and they ban things like beef, pork, lamb, and goats. Sure, like the Old Testament stuff. and 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So now I'm starting to see why this guy wasn't, he was complicit, but he wasn't necessarily guilty of murder. Mm -hmm. And it's also suspected that David probably suffered from some type of mental illness, possibly schizoaffective disorder as well. And maybe that's how Laura inherited it. Sure. It is genetic, correct? Yes. There's absolutely a strong genetic component to schizoaffective. To schizophrenia, yes. Which would also just like talk, like uh, speak to his uh, belief in seeing the second coming of Christ. Yep, absolutely. To the point of being excommunicated or whatever from the church. Yeah. Which obviously isn't the church or excommunication when it's Mormon, but still. Yeah, whatever, whatever it's called. Their or equivalency w- of that. Yeah, and I, I, I think that he was kicked out, but I'm not totally sure. I'm not sure. If he just chose to pull away or if he was actually formally kicked out, but I think that he was kicked out. So neither Lorraine or Laura allowed themselves to eat enough to sustain life and their corpses were actually found with towels in between their legs because the feeling of bone rubbing against bone had become so painful Mm -hmm. that they couldn't withstand it anymore. They also had headbands on their head because they had become really sick. And so the headbands were meant to keep their hair out of their face, you know. Yeah. When authorities asked why David didn't interfere with their declining mental health and subsequent deaths, he claimed that that would have shown a lack of faith on his part. And he believed that their deaths were still a part of the plan, which is why he didn't call authorities. When they interviewed him and asked about how both women died, he said that he hadn't seen Laura for two weeks. So he went to check on her in the bedroom. When he went in, he saw Lorraine reading scriptures over Laura's dead body, apparently trying to bring her back to life. And Lorraine would do this for months after Laura's death, you know, read scriptures, try to bring her back to life. And then about two years after Laura's death, David went into the room to check on Lorraine and he realized that she too had passed. She died on the floor, so he picked her up and placed her on the bed with Laura and put the blanket over them. And strangely enough, there were some right there were some entries in the journal talking about David. These were entries that Lorraine wrote, and it's kind of hard to figure out what to make of them because she said things like he would move through the house like a wisp, I think is what she said, or something like that. And she also said that she referred to him as a murderer. But I, I don't know why. Like, I'm not sure what. There's probably more to this story. All of the other evidence, though, corroborates what David says. Yeah, so, it's still weird. It, no, yeah, it is. Authorities weren't sure how to charge David at first. They didn't want to charge him with intentional homicide because he clearly hadn't killed them himself. But they did need to hold him accountable for the role that he played in their deaths. Ultimately, the prosecution and defense struck a deal. If David pled guilty to two counts of involuntary manslaughter and paid $40,000 towards the cost of the county's investigation, then they would drop the rest of the charges that they had against him. So I believe he took an Alford plea, which an Alford plea basically says, I'm not admitting to doing this thing, but I am admitting that the court has enough evidence to convict me. So I will basically plead guilty, but I'm not admitting to committing the crime. So David takes an Alfred plea and he was sentenced to four to six years with a six month mental health ride program or is it rider program? Probably a rider. I don't know. So basically, I believe 
what that means is that he had to spend six months of that five to six year sentence in a mental health institution. Sure. And then after those six months were up, the rest of his sentence could be spent on probation, probation or parole or whatever. I think probation, you know, in his at home. So six months of mental health care, is that assuming that they let him out at the end of the six months? You know, does he have to do a set amount of time in a forensics, like a in a in a mental health facility run by the state where they just potentially medicate you for six months and then you get out and you're on probation? Or is it you do a minimum six months where they evaluate you and treat you and then they, they say, okay, you're, you're good to go. Or they say, well, you know, maybe you should stick around here for a little bit longer. I'm not sure exactly what the program entails. I'm not sure if it is a minimum six months and then they can decide to keep you or let you go after that. But I am pretty sure in his case, at least, that he just spent six months in a mental health program and then he was let out. Do you know where he is today? He actually passed away, but he, I think he passed away from cancer when he was around 76. I could be wrong about that. Did he get better? I, I think so. I don't think that there were any other incidents. I will say, though, that he did continue to live in the same house, although I think that he actually had the house relocated to somewhere else, to a different town, I think. But he lived in the same house for the for 11 years. Maybe he found some comfort or solace living there, or maybe he just knew that it was not going to be able to be sold. So he had can't to just sell kind of it, live can't in live it. in the same town. Put it on a truck. Let's go. Yeah, I know. I know. But I, I do have a lot of empathy for him. You have empathy for everyone. I have a lot of empathy for the whole family because they were clearly, again, this is a case of Foley Adu. They were clearly very sick. Yeah. And I wish that there was someone outside of the family who saw what was going on and was able to get them help. But unfortunately, it seems that they had isolated themselves so much that even their own family members, although they knew something was wrong and that's why they called police to ask for a welfare check, there wasn't anything else they could do because the police literally said we can't do anything else. That's sometimes a problem with, with what happens with police. You know, they know, you know, it's not what you know, it's like what you can prove. And you that means that you can know that something is eventually going to happen. Yeah. You can't do anything to stop it. There should be some... Recourse. There should be something that can be done in situations like that. Or you can't because you can't punish people who haven't done something. No, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be punishment. It should be check up on them. You know, go to the house without only being called. I mean, that's true, but what if you know, is there a possibility that they could have maybe sent spent some more time there and talked to the women and kind of understood a little bit more about what was going on and and then you know maybe taking a different route i don't know i just wish there was something that could have been done i feel you but at the same time i also believe that we we have a right to not be you know harassed by police and to not be harassed by people and to be able to live the way that we want to live and what you know there's a it's like a fine line that you walk between upholding Mm. both of those things okay So the last story we're going to cover today is the strange disappearance of the Trump family from Australia. The family consisted of the parents, Mark and Jacoba, and their three adult children, Rihanna, Mitchell, and Ella. 
They were a normal family who owned a red currant farm, and it was a very successful farm, actually. Well, red currants, those are berries, right? I believe so. Right. Every member of the family worked together on the farm, so it's safe to say they were very close-knit. Their disappearance began on Monday, August 29th, 2016, when Mark told his family that somebody was out to get them and that they would surely die if they stayed in their house. He ordered everyone to leave their phones at home and jump in the car. Mitchell, the son, snuck his phone into the car with them, but the parents threw it out once they realized about 32 kilometers into the trip. The family stopped in a town called Bathurst to spend the night. It seems like Mitchell had only gone because he was worried about his parents, not because he believed he was in any real danger. But the next day, Mitchell just couldn't take it anymore. He wasn't able to deal with the paranoia and what was happening. And I think he probably thought he would be able to help best if he made it back home. So he decides to jump on a train from the town of Bathurst to head back to the farm. The rest of the family continued on towards the Janolan Caves, which is a famous tourist spot, I think. At this point, the other two sisters decided to split from their parents as well. With no other options, in their mind at least, they stole a car and started driving back towards home. But they stopped in the town of Goulburn to report their parents missing. After filing the report, they stopped at a gas station, at which point they decided they should split up because Ella one of the daughters, wanted to go back home to feed her horses. Mm -hmm. At this point, the story has been made public since they filed the police report, so police begin looking for the family members and the press begin talking about the bizarre case. Ella ended up arriving back home that night, so she's the first first family member to make it back home, where she finds police waiting for her, or at least she finds them at her home. Right, right, right. Police had gone inside to find the place had been ransacked. It looked as though someone was looking for something in particular, but they weren't sure what it was. Financial documents had been rifled through, and they noticed that the family left all of their credit cards and passports, along with all of the cell phones besides Mitchell's. While Ella has, you know, driven home, Rihanna is still out. All the other members of the family are, you know, still out in their respective places. Yeah. So that night, as Ella you know, is making at home, Rihanna is found somewhere else. She is found in the back of a man named Keith Whitaker in the back of his truck. Hmm. He had driven the car for nearly an hour before he felt a kick from the back seat. And when he turns around, he sees her legs. She's like lying on the floor in between the seats. Shit. Yeah. And he obviously stops and, you know, freaks out, right? Starts trying to figure out what's going on, but she is in a completely catatonic state. Oh. And then she claims that she doesn't know who she is or where she is. So Keith quickly called the police. They come pick her up and they transport her to Goldburn Hospital for help. Okay. The next morning, Mitchell makes it back home as well. Okay. So both him and Ella, who are both at home with the press and police, right. plead with the public to help find their parents. Police go and search their parents' last known whereabouts near the Janolan Caves, but there was no trace of them there. And that's because the parents had begun to drive to another town called Wangarada. At this point, the parents also decide to split up for unknown reasons. Jacoba traveled to the town of Yass. Some sources say 
that it's not clear what method of transport she used, while others say that she used public transportation, so I'm not sure how she got there, but she did. Thankfully, she was spotted and taken to the local hospital, and then they transferred her to the same hospital as Rihanna, her daughter. At this point, the only family member still missing is Mark, the father. He was spotted in Wangaratta, the same town that he was in when he split from Jacoba, but they weren't able to get him. You know, by the time they called police, he was gone. And then that night, a couple is driving down the road and someone behind them is like severely tailgating them to the point that they cannot even see his headlights. That's how close he is. Afraid and confused, the couple pulled over and that car followed right behind them, pulling over. They're sitting in their car like, what the fuck is going on? And the person in the car opens the door and starts fucking running right towards them, which is absolutely fucking terrifying. And then he just stops in the middle of the road and stares at them, does that for a while, and then just runs off. Um, what? So that person, everyone is pretty sure that's Mark. Yeah, it looked like him, yeah, and it was Mark, very yeah. strange behavior. So now they're, you know, looking in that area for him. Sure. They don't find him that night, but the next day... Everyone's, you know, still on the lookout for him. Someone sees him running alongside a street right outside of the town of Wingarada, where him and his wife split up. This time, police were able to pick him up. Good. And they take him to the station and they allow his brother to come pick him up from the station. So the media is waiting there for his brother to come pick him up and... They take pictures of them and Mark's like flipping them off, which I don't totally blame him. Obviously, if you've just gone through this really strange traumatic thing, and especially if you think that people are out to get you about like out to get you, you do not want the media taking pictures of you. Yeah, because now he's going to find you. Right. Exactly. And at this point, he hasn't received any type of help. So, you know, who knows what he probably was thinking that someone was going to get him. And that is basically all that we know. We don't know anything else aside from that. Obviously, the, all every member of the family is safe. Everyone's fine. But no one knows what the fuck happened. So people have theories. Um, You're telling me that you just told us all that and we have no idea what happens from here. Yes. I mean, we know that they're all safe and that they, you know, are all fine, but we don't know anything else i mean okay well what are the theories the theories and i i'll also tell you that some of the siblings have spoken out like a little bit but really not much so they don't really you know give a whole lot of information but the theories from the general public include maybe the pesticides that they were using on their farm caused them to trip up have yeah some type of psychotic event sure Another Seems theory plausible. is that they were running from debt collectors, but police investigated both of those theories and ruled them out because it didn't seem that there were any pesticides that could have done that to them. And there was no evidence that anyone, debt collectors or anyone else, was out to get them. I mean, did dad find some funky mushrooms from the cow patch? That was another theory was maybe they, you know, all used mushrooms or something like that. And just had a really bad trip, but it doesn't seem like that happened either. So the best theory is that this was another case of Fouli Adu, where they all had a shared delusion. And again, it seems like some of the family didn't really believe 
that people were out to get them, but right. they were going with because they wanted to keep an eye on their parents and make sure they were safe. Yeah, like mom and dad are having a meltdown, and Miltra's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of this." Yeah. Plus, somebody needs to feed the animals. Yes, exactly. And, and so that's that's what Ella was worried about was sure. she wanted to go back to feed the horses, but obviously Rihanna hides in someone's car and is in a catatonic state so she i think at that point had believed what was going on and Something. yeah so fully i do is you know the best theory that that is what occurred and from the very limited things that the siblings have said to the media it seems like they kind of a little bit confirmed that that is what happened right it's one the only of, feasible thing yeah one of the daughters said that she's pretty sure that there was a buildup of stress that caused the yeah. the incident. She said, quote, you have a few things and they do build up. You can get sick in some way. Sure. She also said that they were all very embarrassed and they did not want to be famous. That was not what was happening. It yeah, was just... They didn't continue, right, to like play it up or talk about it to the media so they didn't try to be famous with it. Yeah, no. So that adds up. Not at all. Not at all. And they they took risks that could have gotten them in trouble, you know? Yeah. Like they stealing a car. Yeah. And steal well, kind of stealing two cars. They stole right, the one right. car at first. The sisters stole the one car and then the second sister got in the back of the other car. Right. And I believe that Ella was actually charged with stealing a car, but I think that the people's car who she stole decided they didn't want to press charges. So I don't think that ever, like that ever actually stuck. And Rihanna told reporters that her parents had never done anything like that before, but they had recently been, you know, more stressed than usual, more agitated than usual. And she just thinks that they kind of had a mental breakdown that caused them to believe that and it just spread throughout the family and she said that it was you know incredibly scary yeah i bet obviously you know thinking that you could be in serious danger and then having to go on this like road trip where you know everyone starts to split up and you end up in the back of someone's truck that's terrifying that is terrifying but um the good news is that rihanna told the media that they're all happy and healthy and they're just trying to get back on track again and get over everything that's happened. So I think they're all doing good now and that is great news. That is exactly how you would want something like that to end where everyone ends up getting help and everyone's okay. Yeah, absolutely. But it's obviously a very scary situation and it just shows how real these things are when people experience them. For sure. So that is the three cases of Folia Du that I wanted to talk about today. I'm sure at some point in the future we will cover more cases because there are more out there. Dancing Plague. Some of them. Yeah, the Dancing Plague for sure. So yeah, so that is all that we have for this episode. And we will be back very, very soon and talk to you guys very, very soon. Thank you all so, so much for listening to this. We love you all. And if you have a second... If you could rate and review, that would be so, so amazing. I understand that's so annoying. So I'm so sorry for asking, but it's very helpful for us. Like I said, you can email 
thedarkoriginspod at gmail.com if you have any case suggestions. So yeah, that is all for today. Thank you again for listening, and I love you all so much. Bye. See you next time. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.